And so let's begin by setting our motivation, as we always do. There's a, a very famous verse in the Dhammapada that, I think it's in the Dhammapada, where the Buddha said, do not commit a single negativity and cultivate a wealth of virtue. And so the reasoning behind this advice is that none of us wants to suffer. And so because of this, the Buddha advises not to commit a single negativity. And as we look closely at our lives, we'll come to recognize that the negativities are the causes of our experiences of suffering. And so he advised us, do not commit a single negativity. We all want to be happy and unsurpassed happiness is caused by cultivating a wealth of virtue. So this is the advice that the Buddha gave, and yet there's a certain danger in just accepting what the Buddha said simply because he said it. And so rather than accepting this advice unequivocally, the Buddha also himself advised us to investigate things thoroughly. And so we need to investigate for ourselves whether it's actually the case that negativities result in suffering and virtues result in happiness. And as we do so, we begin to develop a certain confidence or knowledge of how the state of our mind and our own actions contribute to our experiences of happiness and suffering. And we need to uh, think about that again and again and again until it's second nature, until it's automatic, until it's part of our very being, that we understand that and that we our actions begin to um, give witness to what we understand. In his text, The Guide to the Bodhisattva's Way of Life, Shantideva says, all happiness in this world comes from striving to benefit others, and all the suffering comes from seeking to serve oneself. And so here's another piece of advice that we can really take to heart and examine in our own life experience to see how all the different problems that we experience external problems, internal problems, if we look, they can be traced back to the self-centered attitude, the self-centered mind, a mind that sees our own happiness and well-being as more important than others, and often seeks happiness at the expense of others. So in our practice of the Dharma, then, we, we can test this advice out for ourselves. And if we understand these two points, then whatever Dharma practice we engage in will turn out very well. We can trust that. We can count on that. This brings real wisdom to our practice, the wisdom of karma and uh, the wisdom of bodhicitta. However, if we don't understand these points, then it's not certain where our practice will take us. So it's important for us to reflect on these again and again and again, these two complementary pieces of advice. So let's bring that to mind as we listen to this review tonight and remember that we're not just here for our own well-being, our own happiness and satisfaction, but rather we're genuinely interested in developing our full potential so that we can be of greater and greater benefit to all living beings. So, um, as I said, we've been studying this volume for the past 18 months. How many of you have been following the teachings online? Any of you? Okay, a couple people, off and on. <laughs> I can see by your shaking. Okay. <laughs> well, uh, let me do a little uh, commercial for this book because it's, it's truly a treasure uh, to read this book. I wish I had had this book when I began studying Tibetan Buddhism many years ago. Um, let me start by saying one of the unique contributions of Tibetan Buddhism is this genre of teachings called the Lam Rim, or the Graduated Path, the Graduated Stages to Enlightenment. And the Lam Rim is a systematic approach. Lama Tisha took all the Buddha's teachings and put them in a very systematic way of studying. 
so that we could see how certain teachings were a foundation for the teachings that came after them, and they served as a foundation for the later teachings as well. Venerable Chodron recognized many, many years ago as a young Buddhist that the graduated stages on the path to enlightenment held a lot of assumption for us Westerners, a lot of assumptions that, that we weren't prepared for, actually. Um, assumptions about the Buddhist explanation of mind. You, you know, we, we come to Buddhism thinking, well, isn't the mind the brain? <laughs> a lot of us. Um, we don't have much of a, an idea of the mind as a continuum and the implications that that leads to, like, oh, there are past lives and there are future lives. Um, the acceptance of the law of cause and effect, karma and its effects, that's a big given for people coming to Buddhism. Uh, the concept that every living being has Buddha nature and what that entails, what that means for us as practitioners. And so this first volume draws on the teachings that His Holiness has given to Western audiences over the years. Venerable has been very, um, very clever, very selective in bringing out some excellent pieces of advice and also specific interview questions that she uh, engaged His Holiness on to actually uh, hear his reply, his response to a lot of the doubts and the questions that we as Westerners tend to have when we start studying Tibetan Buddhism and the Lama in particular. So this first volume addresses some of the confusion that we have when we engage with Tibetan Buddhism and with Tibetan teachers. Um, given our framework of science and modern psychology and the education that we have that probably most of us take for granted. It also acknowledges our, our need, this book acknowledges our need for rational arguments that prove things like rebirth and liberation and the three jewels, the existence of the three jewels, the Buddha Dharma Sangha. And what I love about this volume is that it doesn't shy away from examining things like the authenticity of the Mahayana and the Tantric teachings, um, how to understand the tulku systems, what these words mean, geshe, lama, um, tulku, uh, Rinpoche, um, and how to work with exaggerated statements that we sometimes hear. For example, um, if you say this mantra and put a little blessed saliva on your feet, then wherever you walk and whatever you step on, if you happen to kill a little insect, um, that it has conducive conditions to be reborn in, what is it, the God realm of the 33? Yeah, in, the, in our practice in the morning. So, like, really? <laughs> Have you thought about that? Really? How does that work? Venerable asks His Holiness, how does that work? So a lot of questions like that are answered or spelled out in this first volume. There's also some beautiful uh, advice about the working of the world, and there's a chapter on his personal advice to us that is just gorgeous, every word of it. I'd like to read you that whole chapter, but we probably won't have time tonight. So tonight we're reviewing chapters 10 and 11. Um, we began our reviews in Venerable's absence by doing one or two pages <laughs> and then we found out that she's already finished the book and we're moving on to volume two and we haven't finished reviewing it. So we've been doing leaps and bounds. So tonight we're doing two chapters and we'll see how we go. So this chapter, chapter 10, is called uh, Making Progress, Making Progress in Our Spiritual Practice. And the chapter begins with this paragraph. He says, All of us want our Dharma practice to bear fruit, but even with good intentions, it's easy to deviate from the path. We can get sidetracked in several ways. Being aware of the potential pitfalls in advance helps us to avoid them. And knowing the signs of making progress on the path enables us to accurately assess our practice. So looking around the room, I see that some of you have been practicing the Dharma for a number of years. Um, Ryder and I met at a retreat in 1999? Vajrasapa retreat, actually, <laughs> in Dharamsala. Um, and many of you uh, have also been practicing for a long time. And so I'm curious, um, I'd like to ask you, have you encountered any pitfalls in your practice? <laughs> <laughs> and if you have, would you mind sharing one or two of them? I guess um, I've been coming to the Abbey for quite a long time, and I would come get very, very, very inspired and write a whole list of when I go back, I'm going to do all of these things. 
And I think usually within like two weeks, I would forget about the list. And then when I would come back to the Abbey, I would pick up that Dharma notebook and be like, oh, yeah, I forgot about that. So that's one of them. Mm -hmm. Anybody else have that problem? <laughs> Being hard on myself, mm. shooting myself, mm. thinking I should be much further along than I am. And you should be. <laughs> <laughs> that doesn't help. <laughs> yeah. Anybody else, anybody else have that problem? Yeah, a lot of us. <laughs> okay. And over here? So be, I used to think, oh, when that happens to me, I will handle things in this way, you know, with dharma, in dharma way and I'll handle things this way and, and when that actually happened, I did terribly <laughs> and it was as if I never planned it before and that happens. Sometimes we it? think we're ready to apply the dharma and we're just not. Yeah. I think a major pitfall that I've worked with a great deal has been establishing oneself within your own practice and distinguishing between prescription and protocol and meaning making mm -hmm. and navigating that process on a continual basis by which to elucidate what the teachings are to you on a very personal basis while also honoring and trusting um, the path that's been laid forth. Uh -huh. Well, the easiest way to say it is being in denial, <laughs> but to make more sense of that, coming to trainings and hearing things Venerable talks about and just kind of shrugging it off like I don't do that and never really taking the time to get on my cushion when I get home and see if, or even when I'm here, to see if I'm really doing it or not. So it's kind of the, I, I don't know how to explain it other than it's kind of a denial and shrugging off that I may be doing these things that she's talking about, but I don't really want to accept it. It's the, she's talking to the person next to me syndrome. Absolutely. <laughs> right. I, my pitfall is everybody's, but I'm always starting over in Buddhism. Always. I'm like, oh, I think I know a little bit more than I did last year. And then I go, what are those eight worldly concerns? And I can only come up with seven of them or something. And so then I just come here and I arrange the Tupperware. <laughs> and things start to get a little settled down. And hopefully once it... <laughs> I want big merit for that. <laughs> no. So, it, you know, there's a certain amount of starting over mm -hmm. and sometimes trying to realize what have I accumulated here? And then I stop thinking about that because I just want to, you know, stay. Just, I, I say to myself, just stay with it. Stay yeah. with it. Wonderful. Keep practicing. Anybody else have that uh, syndrome going on? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'll, um, I'll work on the non-virtues, and I'll, you know, be very careful about not stealing pens and what have you. But then I find something like um, uh, idle speech will just blossom. <laughs> mm -hmm. So it's like I got my hand on one thing, and then the other things grow. So then, yeah, it's like trying to put out all the fires at once. Whack-a-mole. Whack yeah, it's like Dharma whack-a-mole. <laughs> you hit one down, and another one pops up. Someone online says that a lot of the words and phrases are over my head. I have very little understanding of this religion, but I love the chanting and meditation. Okay. I think um, kind of similar to what Tracy just shared was that um, feeling like I've like having focused on enough particular affliction or a habit for a while and kind of feel like I've got a little bit under control. 
and then kind of loosening up on that a little bit because then I'm focusing on something else and then it just what comes up again and kind of smacks me in the face. It's like, whoa. Um, and to not fall into discouragement at yeah. that point, but just to see it's kind of like it's layers or it, it's part of a process. Yeah. Okay. Anyone else? The rest of you don't have pitfalls. <laughs> How wonderful. I rejoice. <laughs> Okay. Well, in Chapter 10, His Holiness and Venerable Children identify a couple of major pitfalls uh, in the practice of Dharma, and it's good to, to recognize these and to understand them uh, and to apply them to ourselves to see, if, to see if they do apply to us, whether we're brand new on the path or whether we've been practicing for quite a while. So the first one that's identified is unrealistic expectations. And uh, you kind of alluded to that, so. Um, uh, His Holiness talks about how we have both a useful and a useless sense of self. Have you noticed? The useless sense of self is very unrealistic and operates without the use of reason. It just operates on the grounds of, I want this, I must have this, I need it now, because I do. And um, and this exaggerated, reified sense of self is controlled by self-grasping, self-cherishing, uh, and thinks that uh, this unhelpful tunnel vision that just looks out for I, me, and mine is going to lead to happiness. And this kind of I tends to have very unrealistic expectations from Dharma practice. So we can put those two things together. The useful or realistic sense of self operates based on more on logic and reasoning. Logic and reasoning do play a prominent role in the Buddhist tradition, and uh, which leads to developing a strong sense of self-confidence and strong aspirations to training our mind to progress along the entire path. There's a lot of um, dependent arising also plays a prominent role where we can see how certain things lead to certain results, um, how everything is interconnected, and uh, those things can help us. So, what are some of our most unrealistic expectations? We've mentioned some of them. Um, and one that didn't get mentioned that His Holiness really gives a lot of airtime to here is expecting maximum result from minimal effort. <laughs> Any of you suffer from that? Okay, all of us. <laughs> um, that we can overcome our afflictions quickly is a major unrealistic obstacle. And so right here in this first volume, he's spelling this out so that we can um, relax a little bit, you know, take some of the pressure off and, uh, and engage with the practice in a measured, gradual, realistic, uh, consistent and persistent approach. So the, one of the main um, focuses of our practice is to reduce the afflictions, isn't it? And afflictions are overcome in stages, as we'll, we'll talk about this a lot this uh, coming weekend. They're not overcome all at once. And so there are a series of things that we do to overcome the afflictions, right? We first begin by gaining some understanding that our mind has some role in the creation of our happiness and suffering. This is first and foremost. And so to really investigate that, to play that out for ourselves and check to see if that's not the case. Um, then we begin learning about the importance of ethical conduct. That's throughout our entire Dharma practice, isn't entire The entire Lam Rim really is based on this ethical foundation. And also the law of cause and effect, the law of karma. Um, so we learn about uh, the general characteristics of karma, the ten non-virtues, the ten most common ways that we create uh, suffering for ourselves. And we begin restraining from those. As Venerable Chodron often says, we stop being a jerk. That's one way that we stop being a jerk, is to um, begin to identify these ten non-virtues and actively restrain from them. We also learn about uh, how to apply the four opponent powers, which we'll be doing a lot this weekend as we engage in the Vajrasattva practice, so that we can begin actually purifying the negativities from our mind stream, um, little by little, right? That's one level of practice. Um, next, we identify the main afflictions that get in the way of our happiness. So we learn about the six root afflictions and learn what are their characteristics. 
Um, how are they distorted? How do they distort our thinking? Uh, what are the disadvantages of them? What are the advantages of applying the antidotes? What are the antidotes? So we learn about the mind, whether we're talking about the six root afflictions, the 20 secondary afflictions. There's a beautiful section in um, The Precious Garland that, that describes 57 afflictions that we can work with. There are many different lists that help us to identify the erroneous ways that we think, and then we uh, learn specific antidotes to each one of those afflictions. So that's also a certain part of our practice is to apply the specific antidote to each affliction. Then eventually we're able to, we learn about uh, wisdom and the role of wisdom in this tradition and we're able to generate uh, some, down the track, some wisdom realizing emptiness, the, the ultimate nature of reality. And the beauty of, uh, the, the explanation of the beauty of this development or this attainment is that um, Wisdom realizing emptiness antidotes every single affliction we have. So it's a very efficient uh, antidote to, to the afflictions that we're trying to overcome. But even if we think about wisdom realizing emptiness, that's generated in stages too. It's not like one realization of emptiness and poof, we're finished. Sometimes people think that. But actually when we learn more, then what we come to find out is that first we, we have to just learn about what is wis this wisdom that realizes emptiness? What What is it? Uh, opposing, you know, and um, how to understand uh, how it works in our mind. Um, and so initially we develop a conceptual realization of emptiness. That's one level of practice. And initially that's just kind of like a, a very strong understanding, conceptual understanding of emptiness. But then we might combine that with uh, strong concentration, calm abiding or serenity. And so now, now we have wisdom and serenity combined. And then um, not only serenity or calm abiding, but then we bring that together with special insight. And uh, we have special insight, the union of calm abiding and special insight focused on emptiness. And so as we're progressing through this, these realizations of emptiness, our antidote to the afflictions is getting stronger and stronger and stronger. Up to now, all of this is still conceptual. You see how there's quite a progression, even at the conceptual level. And then eventually, uh, one day down the track, we'll have our first non-conceptual, direct non-conceptual realization of emptiness. Um, and we might think, oh, we've arrived, that's all we need to do now, that we're finished. But even that, that first non direct non-conceptual meditative equipoise on emptiness abandons only a portion of the afflictions. Luckily, it abandons them completely so that they never return. But again, it's it's going to be a gradual progress through the 10 stages of developing stronger and stronger realizations of emptiness combined with and supported with method so that eventually we can remove all the afflictions, completely remove them, eliminate them from our mind to the degree that they never come back again. So um, did any of you start out the path thinking that you would achieve enlightenment in this one life? Or was I the only one? <laughs> Maybe some of you still have that thought. I'm sorry. I've just blown it for you, haven't I? <laughs> You're leaving now? Okay. Um, seriously, when I first started going to teachings at DFF in Seattle and I started learning about the path, I thought, well, okay, I'll get this done in this lifetime and we'll see what happens. <clears throat> the amazing thing is the more, and I'll tell you my experience, the more I learn about this path, the more I realize I don't know and the more committed I am to progressing along this path. Have you had that? Do you have that experience as well? So it's amazing that way. It's very humbling. It's a very humbling uh, way to spend our time, <laughs> the way to spend our life. So, and, and even with those, you know, the perceptual realization of emptiness or the non-conceptual realization of emptiness, you know, first we, we go through these first stages of just removing the afflictive obscurations, then eventually the more subtle cognitive obscurations and eventually there's a place where there's, we reach no more learning. So luckily we have this map, this beautiful map or outline of the progression of where we're trying to go. As ordinary beings, starting with very confused, uh, very afflicted minds, we can at least look at the map and read it and how kind, how compassionate of the Buddha to lead, leave such precise instructions of how to accomplish the same things that he's accomplished. 
So we start where we are, and when we meet with conditions or circumstances that give rise to the afflictions, then we make effort to practice ethical discipline by refraining from these ten non-virtues. You know, we start where we are. Wherever that is, we start where we are, and like some of you were saying, we might have to start again. We might have to con continually restart. Uh, again, it's very humbling when, when you do think that you've gotten a little bit of control over anger, and then all of a sudden it pops its ugly head back up, and there you are yelling at your friend or your spouse or whatever. So in the meantime, we, we make effort applying antidotes to these specific afflictions. So as you know, for anger, that means cultivating patience and loving kindness. For jealousy, we practice rejoicing. For attachment, we meditate on impermanence or the unattractive objects. These are things you're doing every day, right? And um, so we need to be so familiar with the disadvantages of each of these afflictions. That takes time. It takes time and constant familiarity so that Immediately, as soon as one of the afflictions arises, we, we bring to our mind uh, why we're convinced we're not going to engage in, in that affliction. We're going to turn our mind to do something else. This really depends on having very clear values in mind. What are our values? And Venerable talks about this a lot, um, that when we understand it, and she ties it together with um, personal integrity, or yeah, integrity and consideration for others. Um, that when we're clear about what our values are and what it is that we're aiming to cultivate in this life, then when something contradictory to that arises in our mind, we have a better chance of recognizing, wait a minute, I don't want to go down that path. I've made a decision already. I've come to some conclusions about how I want to direct my mind. So if that is something that perhaps you haven't spent a lot of time doing in your life, this retreat would be a good time to do that in the breaks, um, in between sessions to really think about what do I value most in my life? What do I want to cultivate in 2020? What do I want to cultivate in this new decade uh, that's before us? And become really clear about that so that we have a better chance of accomplishing those things. Yeah, so uh, Venerable talks a lot about these two mental factors, personal integrity and consideration for others. Sometimes they're translated as, as shame as embarrassment, but those don't really work so well in this day and age. So Venerable uh, prefers the translations, personal integrity and, uh, and consideration for others. So personal integrity inspires us to abandon negativities because we respect our values and, and we respect our precepts that we've taken. Probably many of you have taken the lay precepts or maybe even the bodhisattva precepts, perhaps the tantric precepts. Um, Recently, uh, it was a couple months ago, she was teaching on these two uh, mental factors, and she asked us um, to really check up to see what kind of person do you want to be? That's how we develop personal integrity, by asking, well, what kind of qualities do I actually want to have? What kind of person do I want to be? And then the integrity is the state of mind that checks up to see, am I following through with what I've decided? And then consideration with, uh, for others is abandoning negativities because we care about the effect that our bad behavior uh, will have on others. So that's humbling work too, isn't it? <laughs> okay. So that's one pitfall, uh, unrealistic, unrealistic expectations. And so it's good to know about that. And so when we do find those little voices in our head that say we should be further along or um, we should be a better practitioner, we should, 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 then we could just remind ourselves that, you know, is this an unrealistic, just ask, is this an unrealistic expectation? I love the way His Holiness reminds us to check our progress in terms of five and ten year increments, okay? Not just from today and tomorrow, but five and ten year increments. And I, I feel confident that if, if each one of us thought about where was I five years ago, or where was I before I met the, the Dharma, we would be able to uh, identify the specific changes, some of the specific changes that we have seen in ourselves. And perhaps our family members could attest to that too. Um, okay. So another pitfall is that we as Westerners want immediate results. We are the McDonald's generation, aren't we? Um, instant results. So His Holiness knows us Westerners very well, and he knows we have this tendency to want immediate results. And that 
that eagerness for immediate results can motivate our practice quite a bit. However, if we attend a retreat like this one and return home more or less the same, at the same level, <laughs> we might be discouraged unnecessarily. We might become despondent thinking the Dharma doesn't work. Um, so another reason for looking at this as a long-term project is that it, it helps us to sustain our practice over the long term, doesn't it? Okay. So the more we learn about the path and what's actually involved, then the more realistic we become and that the practice of Dharma becomes a very long-term project and probably not just one lifetime, but many, many lifetimes for most of us. Um, often we hear this term bandied around about um, three countless great eons. It takes three countless great eons to progress along the path, and that's once we've entered the path. I don't want to discourage you, but <laughs> that's a long way down. That's a long way from where we are now. In fact, uh, Venerable Losan gave a beautiful BBC yesterday, and he was talking about uh, the measure of a small scope practitioner or a, a person of a s small capacity a being of small capacity, you know, what, what they've actually accomplished. And it's, it, it was describing how that person is someone who gives a lot more credence to future lives than the happiness of this life. Um, I think most of us in the room took a gasp, like, <gasps> you know. It, so th these milestones or these measures can be helpful to show us where we are so that we can be more realistic, not to discourage us, not at all but to help us to be realistic and um, to help us um, progress along the path in a way that's going to make sense. You know, given the amount of time, the amount of energy, the amount of resources that we have and that we're willing to devote to the Dharma, then what can we expect? What are, yeah, what's likely to happen? There's a Tibetan saying that I've heard a number of times, apply maximum effort, but expect minimum result. That can be really helpful. Or as our dear Abbas says, um, she reminds us to be content to create the causes. So often we're looking for the results and we're not so invested in just focusing on the causes, but create causes now for the future that we want. His Holiness reminds us that if we practice consistently and continuously, we will inevitably make progress and he makes a, a nice point that we need to be hybrid practitioners. So some of you probably have hybrid cars. <laughs> now we're being encouraged to be a hybrid practitioner. So what does that mean? It means being motivated and enthusiastic in seeking awakening for the benefit of all sentient beings, you know, really having this very far-reaching attitude, but also being relaxed and patient uh, at the same time, understanding that this is going to take a long time, many lifetimes. And so we do what we can in this lifetime. Uh, as much as we can. And so to bring this point across, the Buddha used an analogy of slowly, gradually training a wild thorough, thoroughbred colt. Any of you into horses? No? Yes? One person. <laughs> okay. Maybe this analogy will work for you, or maybe we can think of a more modern example for people who aren't so familiar with horses. In Tibet, um, a lot of people still ride horses, so... This would make sense for them. But he says, first, the colt needs to get used to wearing a bit in its mouth. Imagine. <laughs> uh, which is unfamiliar and uncomfortable at first. But with constant repetition and gradual practice, the horse gets used to it. And so what's, what's that? What can we liken that to in our practice? Ethical conduct. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> it's a bit in the mouth, isn't it? Ethical conduct is like, uh, it's unfamiliar to a lot of us. Yeah, there's not a lot in our society that's really encouraging that anymore. Um, luckily, there are things like um, social-emotional learning that are teaching children how to incorporate that in their life or in their, you know, in their daily uh, learning. But a lot of people are missing out on that in this day and age. So... Uh, this is like us Dharma practitioners who are completely under the influence of the three poisons, ignorance, attachment, anger. And so the bit is like learning about the ten non-virtues, about karma and the ten non-virtues. Um, and at first, uh, or, or like the five lay precepts. Now some of you maybe have just taken those or you're aspiring to take those. Some of, these, some of you have held those for a while, but remember when you first took those precepts, 
Remember how difficult the fifth one was, the one about intoxicants? That's often the one that's most challenging for Westerners. Isn't that interesting? Um, for many reasons. Okay. And then the trainer introduces the harness to the colt, uh, which is also new and uncomfortable at first, and the colt tries to throw it off. But with gradual and repeated practice, he eventually becomes used to it. So what's this like? This might be like learning to identify the different afflictions. So we're going to a more subtle level. First, we're working with more coarse uh, actions of body and speech, maybe the mind. But then we start really looking into the mind to see, well, what are these afflictions? Uh, what are their characteristics? What are their disadvantages? What are the antidotes to those? Um, we really start to guard our mind throughout the day, really paying attention to what we might call negative self-chatter, for instance. You know, to really pay attention to what am I saying to myself all day long? How am I reacting? Uh, really noticing reactivity in our minds and getting on top of what our buttons are so that we can prepare for them. Okay, so that's like the harness. And then the trainer progressively trains the horse to trot and to run and to gallop and to prance. <clears throat> and so as Dharma practitioners, we may come up against many things that are unfamiliar to us as we progress through the path, um, like the progressive training in the Lam Rim. Um, you know, at first, seeing our life as extremely precious and meaningful and difficult to find, we might say, what are you talking about? You know, we take it for granted that we have this incredible, precious opportunity to use every moment to engage in the Dharma, or at least aspire to use every moment. Um, or facing our mortality. Think how challenging or confront confronting that was the first time you walked into a Dharma class and heard about death and impermanence. Uh, or owning up to the negative actions that we've done when we learn about karma. That's pretty confronting, isn't it? Um, <clears throat> or having the courage to look squarely in, at the faults and disadvantages of cyclic existence. Um, recently, um, Stephen came up for, uh, I think it was a, Work, you were offering service on a Friday, and over lunch we were talking about the three sufferings. Uh, often when we talk about the truth of suffering, there are these different ways we can meditate on that. So we talk about the three sufferings, and I was so glad you brought that up, and we were discussing it because I went back and meditated on it the next few days, and it was sobering to realize that every feeling is suffering. Pleasant feelings are suffering. Um, don't want to get too much into that right now. You might lose a few people, but um, but the, the reality is that everything we encounter, as long as our minds are controlled by karma and afflictions, everything we encounter is for us a type of suffering. Um, the fact that we engage with, we, we spend most of our time and energy chasing after things that we are sure will bring us suffering. I mean, happiness. If I only had X, then I'd be happy, whatever it is, and fill in the blank. And most of us have a long list. It's not just one thing. Um, but then we start to investigate when we have that thing and we find that it didn't bring us the happiness that we expected or that we thought it would. And this is something, again, that the Buddha talked about this quite a bit in the teachings, but it's something that we have to investigate for ourselves. Otherwise, they just these words just bounce off, off of us. But that's something that, you know, especially the older practitioners can investigate this week and just notice how many thoughts you have of, I'm not comfortable. I, if I do such and such, I'll be more comfortable. If I have this kind of tea, if I have this kind of cushion, if I have this kind of uh, temperature in the, in the meditation hall, then I'll be happy. So learning about that at first is quite confronting, quite sobering. Or, <clears throat> you know, even learning about the benefits of taking refuge and the five lay precepts, that's it's confronting at first when, when we haven't had that bit in our mouth uh, yet. Or discovering the disadvantages of the self-centered mind. Whoo! <laughs> that's embarrassing when you start looking to see how often that's going on in the mind. Um, or, or learning how to cultivate bodhicitta, the two, di two different methods of cultivating bodhicitta. We, we throw this word around so casually. Yes, I have a bodhicitta motivation, but you know, to actually cultivate bodhicitta takes a lot of intention, a lot of understanding. And so, um, but luckily, you know, it's things that we can become more familiar with slowly, slowly. Um, and, and also learning about wisdom, learning about dependent arising, learning to see that in our daily life. All of these things are, can be quite new and 
unfamiliar to us. And especially for those of us raised in a Christian country, um, many of these topics are quite challenging or confronting when we, f we first come across them. Maybe as children or young adults, you thought that practicing religion was kind of easy. You know, you just go to church once a week and try to be a good person. What's so difficult about that? Yeah. Um, in comparison, Buddhism offers a vast field of knowledge. We can study um, Buddhism, we can study ourselves for a very, very long time and still learn new things, can't we? Our mind is a perfect laboratory for constant discovery, uh, constant learning, as well as all the different topics that we come across. So no matter what field of knowledge we want to master, we can't learn everything at once. We have to go step by step. And as we progress, we'll probably find that we're willing to invest more, more of our time, more of our energy, more of our resources um, to practice and actualize the, the stages of this amazing path to enlightenment. So in chapter 10, His Holiness includes a story of a large public teaching that he gave in LA. And someone there asked him, what's the quickest and easiest path to awakening? Probably we've all had that thought. How can I, how can I get on with this quickly? I'm going to read you what he said because it's quite moving. His Holiness says, I began to weep because I sensed that the person wanted to attain a lofty goal without engaging in the process of getting there. Thoughts of great practitioners like Milarepa flooded my mind. They practiced joyfully even under difficult circumstances because they wanted to attain awakening for the benefit of all sentient beings. They were willing to undergo whatever was necessary to create the causes for awakening because they were convinced in the depths of their heart that this was the most worthwhile thing to do. To attain results like these great practitioners did, we must cultivate that same compassionate motivation and enthusiastic effort. When I cultivate joyous effort to achieve Buddhahood in this lifetime, in the back of my mind I have the idea of numerous lives and many eons. Thus my prayer becomes, in order to serve sentient beings, may I attain Buddhahood if possible, within this lifetime, but more likely after countless lives. So that's something that we can take on board, isn't it? Especially when we find ourselves having those unrealistic expectations or shoulds, we can remind ourselves of this. He says, if we think of attaining awakening in this lifetime but lack the perspective of many lifetimes, our wish is unrealistic and may lead to despair when we do not progress as quickly as we would like. We can see from this that a view that accepts future lives is necessary to maintain a long-term joyful motivation that is free from idealism and despair. So I don't have any fantasy of going into the explanation of past and future lives tonight. <laughs> um, however, this is something that we might want to put on our list of things to explore uh, as we go along. And then he gives some sobering advice to all of us. He says, some goal-oriented people think of nirvana and awakening as things to achieve, yet they do not want to do what is necessary to get there. They seek transcendental experiences in meditation, but are reluctant to change bad habits, such as harsh speech, lying, and taking intoxicants. So again, just a gentle self-reflection can help us to see where we are in, in that progress. So here he's advising us to examine our daily activities in light of the Dharma and to trust that progress will be made gradually, consistently, intentionally. You know, it's kind of like going through the SAFE programs, one at a time. We can't do all, how many are there? 15? 11. 11, okay. We can't do all 11 in one semester or uh, in one course. We have to do them sequentially, right? And, and they build one on top of another, those of you who've done the SAFE courses. And also, he mentions that it's good to keep in mind that Buddha Shakyamuni has not always been awakened, but rather he was once an ordinary, confused being like us. He had afflictions just like we do. This can be a good antidote to some of our restlessness and, and uh, impatience. Um, you know, he wrestled with the same afflictions and dysfunctional tendencies that we do. And so this can ins inspire us along the path. So that's the section on developing realistic expectations in our practice. Do you, do you find that to be uh, helpful advice from His Holiness? 
something that we might be able to put into practice even this weekend as we go through our purification. Then there's a section of advice on engaging in advanced practices at the right time. This is also something that I think is particular for Westerners. Another pitfall is that sometimes as beginners we enter into quite advanced practices without having the necessary uh, foundation or preparation. Have you seen this among some of your Dharma friends? Some nodding heads? Or maybe we're in that category. I certainly took uh, highest yoga tantra initiation early on in the piece, probably before I was ready to take it. So he's giving us some more advice here. He said, um, yeah. So I, I have met a number of people over the years who have focused almost exclusively on developing calm abiding as their practice. Do you know some people like that? Um, this is what Venerable translated as serenity. Um, Tibetan lamas and geshis are reluctant to even encourage Westerners to engage in this kind of practice. It's very serious um, concentration meditation. And the danger is that if we begin those practices early on in our practice before our bodhicitta is developed, um, and if we happen to be able to make progress, we could be pulled off of our bodhicitta motivation. We could get lulled into or seduced by the pleasures of that type of meditation and just aim for meditative absorptions or even give up uh, our bodhicitta and head for personal liberation. So that's one of the dangers. Um, another danger is that actually we almost need full-blown renunciation to develop calm abiding. If you think about it, calm abiding is, a, is, a, is not a desire realm mind, it's a form realm mind, right? So it's like we've turned away from the pleasures of cyclic existence. So we have to have subdued our afflictions to a very great degree uh, to even be able to progress uh, seriously along that path of developing calm abiding. But in this day and age, you, you do s hear about calm abiding retreats and uh, opportunities for getting engaged. We do need a certain level of concentration, so it's, it's good to develop a mindfulness practice and concentration practice. We, we, need, that, we need that in our practice, um, but not to the extent that that's the only thing that we focus on to the exclusion of other things. It's also not uncommon to see inexperienced Dharma students get involved with very advanced practices like Mahamudra or Dzogchen. Do you know some folks like that? Um, it's very seductive. Um, unless we have all the necessary foundation for that kind of practice, it's, it's, yeah, it's like giving the car keys uh, to a young child. <laughs> you know, your red Ferrari, you give them the car keys. It can be dangerous. I've also met many people over the years who have taken high yoga tantra initiations without the necessary foundation of understanding the three principal aspects of the path. And what comes along with some of these tantric empowerments, especially high yoga tantra, is various commitments to do daily practices and, um, you know, six-session guru yoga and then maybe even a deity practice, a sadhana that you're doing every day. And if, if you're not convinced uh, about the importance of those practices, it, it could be very, very easy to, to give up on those practices. And then we've created a great fault in our mind that will slow us down uh, along the path. So, His Holiness is just reminding us that um, accomplishing the entire path to awakening is like building a house. Solid foundation is necessary before we put up any walls, right? <laughs> and solid walls are going to be very necessary before we put on the roof. It makes sense. Um, so, I, what do you think? What do you think inspires Westerners in particular to jump into, or even make requests for very advanced practices? What do you think is at play there? Being goal-oriented in our Success. society, success goal-oriented, yeah, worldly, concerns. worldly concerns attached to attached to the success. Is that what you're talking about, or okay? Uh -huh. You think arrogance might have just a little bit to do with it? Um, I remember one Geshe saying uh, several times, actually, he said, you know, you Westerners take your education for granted. And probably because we are educated and sort of given um, the party line that you can accomplish whatever you want to accomplish if you just study hard enough, put your mind to it. And of course, in one way, that's true. But 
in sequence, right? Um, the Dharma path's quite a bit different than studying something at a university because it requires that we actually integrate what we're studying. It's not just intellectual learning. Hopefully, it's not just intellectual learning, but actual integration. So, um, His Holiness says, beginners would do well to gain an overall understanding of the path by contemplating the four truths, meditating on the practices in common with the initial and middle capacity beings, practicing the six perfections, and furthermore, doing a lot of purification and collecting merit will eliminate obstacles. So there we go. We're, we're doing the right thing by being here this weekend. And then if someone receives an empowerment, their tantric practices will bring the desired results because we've created the foundation. Now, often people think of the Four Noble Truths as very introductory teachings. Ooh. <laughs> Ooh. I'm not sure about that. Okay. Then uh, there's a, a nice section here on signs of progress. And, you know, we like to know what kind of progress we're making in our practice, so let's, let's look at what he says. Um, he begins with a, a statement that says, If we devote our lives to familiarizing with the Dharma, we will definitely see a change in our mind. As the Buddha saying goes, you will be able to see the whole world and everything in it as Dharma instruction. Isn't that amazing? You know, so we talk about the preciousness of our human life, our, our precious human life being very meaningful. And one of the ways of thinking about that is that everything we do throughout the day, we can take onto the path. It can be part of our Dharma practice. Um, now, uh, I was talking with one of the students from the UU Church in Spokane recently, and she told me that she had attended a talk that included... Um, there was a speak, one of the speakers was a Catholic, and at the end of this talk, the, the Catholic man said, one of the things I want to ask God when I meet him in heaven is, why is there so much suffering? And, uh, yeah, why is there so much suffering? Why is there suffering, and why is there so much suffering? That was it. And uh, this woman, who I think doesn't yet identify herself as a Buddhist, um, but has been attending classes with the nuns at UU for several years, found herself thinking, I know what the nuns would say about that. <laughs> And she said that she was surprised to find this thought arising in her mind with such conviction. So you got to be careful at UU. <laughs> those, uh, those teachings will seep in. Yeah. That's the point, right? So we might, uh, what might we expect to see by familiarizing our minds with Buddhist teachings? So this will be a little, um, little quiz. So for those of you who've been practicing for a while, when we have gained some experience of impermanence through understanding the constantly changing nature of people and things, relationships and environments, what might we notice in our practice? More patience? Uh, from, that's from watching the constantly changing nature of things, that we'll have more patience? Um, the, my expectations, like I would think that um, my cat was going to live until it was 18, but then uh -huh. it died at 14. And, and just to recognize that, that um, impermanence and that my expectations are unrealistic. Uh -huh. So uh, that has been really, really helpful. Well, of course uh -huh. it's changing. Everything changes. Uh -huh. And can I ask a follow-up question? Do you find that there's less attachment because there's this understanding of impermanence? Yes, uh -huh. yes, um, because it's going to change. Yeah, great. <laughs> okay. Uh, how about if we meditate consistently on how to rely on the spiritual mentor? What, what, what might we notice there? Spiritual, spiritual mentor or a spiritual teacher? Gratitude rising in the mind. Remember something? Just noticing their qualities. Noticing their qualities? Their good qualities, uh-huh. Yeah, so noticing their good qualities and feeling inspired in practice and noticing gratitude arising. Yeah, you'll have more confidence because you know what you're doing is right by following the advice given by the teacher. Because uh -huh. when you look at how your guide behaves and you look at how you behave, you might notice there's a slight difference. Uh huh. Okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. These are good. Um, one of them that, that I thought of is that uh, we'll have less fault finding with our teacher because we're focusing more on the good qualities. That's, that's one of the things that's mentioned in the Lam Rim that often we, we look at, uh, we might 
really focus in on the small faults of a teacher just out of habit, our own habit of doing that. But when we really meditate on the good qualities of our teacher, then uh, that happens less and we'll follow their advice uh, more closely. Okay, how about if we meditate on precious human rebirth? What's the sign of progress there? A sense of urgency. Uh-huh, so it, in, it influences your motivation to, to what? Make use of this life, huh? <coughs> What's the mark of gaining experience from meditating on refuge? These are good questions, aren't they? You know you have a safe direction. You know you have a safe direction, so you have trust in the direction that you're going. Yeah, confidence in the three jewels, yeah. You have less fear. Yeah, less fear, more faith, deep trust in three jewels. Okay. Um, and what about the fact that we've been meditating on karma and the ten non-virtues? How do you know that's going well? What's the sign of progress there? You come to a Vajrasattva retreat. You come to a Vajrasattva retreat. Yes. You see the value of a Vajrasattva retreat. What else? Think about your life experience. Better ethical conduct. Yes, we're going to be avoiding the ten non-virtues, aren't we? Or non-virtues in general. Okay. Um, what about, um, well, okay, that one's too tricky. Okay. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, yeah, just, just to highlight, especially these three principal aspects of the path, from meditating on the Four Noble Truths and developing some understanding of renunciation, um, a sign of progress is that coarse afflictions arise less and less on, and are eventually diminished. Okay, so that's something to aim for. Um, in the three principal aspects of the past, Sankapa says, when you have day and night unceasingly, the mind aspiring for liberation, you have generated the ter determination to be free. That's a, a milestone we can look for. When we meditate on bodhicitta, we become kinder, more warm-hearted human beings who are courageous in practicing the Dharma for the benefit of others. And uh, when we come to see emptiness and dependent arising is not contradictory, also from the three principal aspects, but rather is mutually reinforcing, such that the mere reminder of dependent arising brings understanding of emptiness and vice versa. This is a measure of having ascertained the correct view of emptiness. So these are signs of progress along the path. But I think this also is another area that we can uh, really spend some time on thinking about, okay, well, what progress have I made? How, how can I tell I've made progress in going through meditating on these different aspects of the long run. Okay, so we're coming towards the end of our time together and um, just want to finish with a, a few questions for you and maybe a quote from His Holiness. A few questions for you, so just take a moment to reflect on these. These are the, um, the reflections at the end of this chapter and I think they're worth thinking about. So, given the Buddhist teachings that you have heard in your life and the Dharma study that you've done, and also the time that you have to devote to your daily practice, what do you see as realistic expectations for yourself on the path? So, obviously these will take a little more reflection time than we have uh, remaining, but and what can you do to accomplish these realistic goals? And then the final question is, how can we keep a happy mind and cultivate patience while working at creating the necessary causes for our short and long-term spiritual goals? So again, those are uh, good food for thought for our uh, breaks during the retreat. And I'd, I'd just like to uh, finish tonight by giving a very strong plug for reading chapter 11. It's called Personal Reflections on the Path. Beautiful uh, pages of His Holiness talking about his own personal practice, how he has developed over the years. In fact, one of the most uh, inspiring things about this chapter is him talking about looking back in his life and seeing how he had progressed and how encouraging that is to think about it in terms of our own uh, practice and spiritual progression. Um, I'll just read two, two quick things. This is called My Day. He says, people often ask me about my daily schedule and Dharma practice. I'm a very poor practitioner, but I keep trying <laughs> because I'm convinced that practicing the Dharma is the path to peace and happiness. So humble. 
In Dharamsala, India, where I live, I wake up at 3.30 a.m. and immediately visualize the Buddha and recite a verse of homage written by Nagarjuna. Enthused by great compassion, you taught the exalted Dharma to dispel all wrong views. To you, Gotama, I prostrate. He says, this verse is especially meaningful to me because it points out the Buddha's compassionate motivation that led him to identify ignorance as the cause of dukkha and then to attain the wisdom realizing the ultimate nature to dispel the, that ignorance. And so then he goes on for the, from there. The last paragraph, uh, last two paragraphs, he says, this is called What I Have Learned in My Life. Someone once asked me, you have lived many decades now. Please sum up the most important things you have learned in life. People are always putting him on the spot like this. Um, I pause to reflect. <laughs> of course, I've had many different kinds of experiences as a citizen in my own country and as a refugee, as a young person and now as an older one, as a student and as a leader. In Buddhism, we, are, we always pray for the welfare of all sentient beings, no matter their life form. This has had a great impact on me. In all situations and with a wide variety of people, I regard everyone as being fundamentally the same. Each one of us wishes to be happy and to be free from suffering. Thinking like this, I immediately feel close to others wherever I go. There is no barrier between us. As a result of meeting many different kinds of people and also due to the experience that age brings, I act in an informal manner with everyone and talk to others as one human being to another. This attitude and behavior eliminate any ground for anxiety. On the other hand, if I thought, I am the Dalai Lama, I am a Buddhist monk, so I should act a certain way and people should treat me in a particular way, that would foster anxiety and resentment. So I forget about such distinctions and I see that I am just a human being who is meeting another human being. On the emotional level, we are all the same. On the mental and physical levels, we are also the same. It is helpful for me to think in this way and it also puts others at ease. Sometimes at the beginning of a meeting or a conversation, people are very reserved and stiff, but within a few minutes, that is gone and we feel very close. So those are certainly words to live by. Okay.